Hello and welcome to the ALC Par African Radio's discussion program. The discussion program brings together experts to reflect on a variety of current security issues facing Africa at local, national and international levels. Hello, I'm Desmond Davis. My guests today are three MSc fellows who are studying security, leadership and society at the African Leadership Centre at King's College in London. They've had their studies disrupted by COVID-19 and uh, they are here to discuss how they have been coping. The three of them are Ivy Nyawira from Kenya, Isa Njai from the Gambia, and Ibrahim Mashina from uh, Nigeria. Ivy, how have you been coping with this momentous change of your studies in, in the, this year? Um, thank you, Desmond. Um, it's good to see you again. And it's it's really been, it's had its ups and downs, but it's also brought a lot of opportunities. Um, I never imagined that I would be writing my dissertation amidst a pandemic, um, being locked up in the house, not being able to go, not being able to interact with other students, not being able to access the library where we have um, diverse materials in school. So it, it was quite challenging. Um, but as the time went by, because I think we were on lockdown for about three months or four, we were able to, I was able to adapt to the changes and it turned out to be an opportunity to learn how to, to do, how to change things up, how to do things online, how to learn online, how to actually focus and what that means because the interactions, face-to-face -face interactions and face-to-face -face learning is very different compared to online and you have to really pay attention. So in yeah. the beginning, it was quite difficult to focus on staring at the screen for more than an hour. But as time went by, it's, it's been, um, we've, I have adapted. It's been a learning opportunity, so to speak. Even though it started with challenges, it, we have, I have been able to, to adapt and learn in the process. Okay, Isa, what about you? What about your experience in COVID-19, 2020? Um, it was, it was uh, I would say, a bad experience um, for two, as far as 2020 is concerned, uh, because of the enthusiasm, the zeal that we all had when we were going for studies back in September, 2019. And the hope was that we were going to complete our studies um, you know, via face-to-face. -face. Um, but the story all completely turned around to be different. Um, it was a bad experience at the beginning, but like Ivy said, it was also an opportunity to learn new things and learn how things could be done differently. And I think this is um, very important as far as um, my course is concerned, um, leadership, um, security, and society. In leadership too, when, you know, sometimes the 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 the, the one of the, 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 the rule fails, for instance, this is the way normally you do things, but it couldn't work that way. You have to look for alternatives. So it was a kind of a paradigm shift for me um, as far as doing things is concerned. So it was an opportunity, um, but also it limited us to interact as we expected. But all in all, um, it was also a great experience, you know, combining both the face-to-face -face aspect of it and also look, um, the, the virtual aspect that we had. Um, via online lectures. And, and what about you, Ibrahim? Uh, thank you very much, Desmond. 
uh, as my colleagues uh, Asa and Ivy mentioned, to me also is uh, both a challenging and also a learning process because uh, this pandemic has struck when nobody expected. Uh, it's be challenging in, because you try to balance your mental health while at the same time also uh, balancing your academic process, writing your dissertation. Also, we have to finish some of our essays through uh, some of our essays during the pandemic. So, of course, we have to focus more on the uh, opportunities and the learning processes. Of course, it's a challenging, but this is something we have to live with it. So by trying to learn how to adapt and you know, navigate our ways through these uh, doubting challenges, to me, is also a leadership lesson. Because when you are in position of uh, authority, leading people, you should not expect everything to go as you plan. So you should as, uh, also always uh, prefer to deal with the complex and uncertainty. Uh, I mean, that is part of life. So this is a learning process to me because we are able to navigate and to successfully finish our uh, program. Yes, I, I mean, this is a good example of, of a leadership a crisis. How have you? How do you view the uh, the global reaction to uh, COVID nineteen by the world's leaders? Um, I think um, leaders were caught unawares, and we have definitely seen that different leadership styles have produce different outcomes. Um, for example, the model that's going around in New Zealand as to how they have managed to, they managed in the early stages to contain the virus compared to a Trump in the United States who doesn't believe in science, doesn't believe in taking precautions, has, is giving misleading information to his people compared to Vietnam, whereby there are very few deaths and um, they're not getting enough coverage or crossing over to Rwanda and Uganda, whereby they were able to contain the virus, even though um, many leaders in the West predicted that Africans will die in big numbers. So it's been very um, interesting to see how different leaders, oh, not forgetting um, Tanzania, who believes the virus, you know, they have no virus and because they believe in God and the virus does not exist in um, bodies which um, serve God, you know, very spiritual beliefs. And when you look at those different responses as a leadership scholar, you can see that um, different leaders really bring to the table different um, outcomes based on their values, based on um, because we see, for example, Tanzania is bringing religion into this. Trump uh, is bringing the, his disbelief in science. And, and New Zealand is bringing the practicality of it. So it's different values, different leaders who have different values are, are responding to this virus in different ways. So for me, that has been very interesting. And I wonder what... Um, this, for example, at, at, in Tanzania, what you know, different they could do differently, and the lessons that they could learn from New Zealand, from Uganda, from Tanzania—I mean, from Rwanda, for example. Yes, Isa. I mean, the way African leaders have handled the pandemic has been praised globally. So it means that African leader 
if they really put their minds to think, to, to things, they can really run the continent a lot better. Don't you think so? Yes, yeah, certainly. I think um, <clears throat> if they're able to put their minds together and also work in the interest of their people, they'll be able to um, effect positive change on the continent. Um, as far as COVID-19 is concerned, I think um, for me, um, world leaders at some point um, underestimated the strength of COVID-19 um, and the alarming way at which it was um, crisscrossing um, across countries in, you know, and, and, uh, in different parts of the world. Um, what we have seen is leaders, different leadership styles being employed by different leaders. And we have seen countries like, for instance, Sweden, you know, where not strict measures were put in place compared to the UK um, and other places or France or Spain, but they, they have, the numbers have not been high compared to these countries. Um, we have also seen countries, as for example, UK, France, Spain, Italy, who have put in those measures. Still, we had high cases or high numbers of cases um, in those countries. And we have seen also, I mean, countries, leaders who try to build that sense of mutuality between them and their followers. And in Africa particularly, this has been difficult. For instance, Nigeria, where it was difficult to build that strong sense of mutuality between the leadership and the followers because of the, you know, the mindset the people had that in fact COVID-19 is a hoax designed by the outsiders or the Westerners. And in the Gambia too, it wasn't much different. I mean, at the beginning, there was that sense of mutuality. People wanted to listen to the, to the government. But at some point, the government had failed in its responsibility, especially just two months ago when it started breaking the very rules, the COVID-19 regulations that it made. When the president went around the country to campaign, conversing for votes, um, in the midst of the pandemic, people were worried, some people were out of job, and the president just left the state house to go around the country without face mask, without social distancing, without respect to the regulations. And this, in fact, gave people the opportunity to say, in fact, now, COVID is over in the Gambia. I mean, there is no COVID because our leadership itself is not leading by example. Yeah. So these were and it's still a problem in the Gambia. And now what we are seeing, that, that is why the president in fact came out to say that there could be a second phase of second wave of COVID-19 in the Gambia. People do not believe in the virus anymore. So there's lack of that sense of mutuality between the leaders. And I think this is the main problem that African governments have dealt with as far as this COVID-19 is concerned. I mean, the followers have not been convinced enough as far as the attitude of the leadership is concerned towards COVID-19. Um, has not been impressive. And I think this has really affected them in terms of tackling the virus in their respective. Yes, Ibrahim, uh, you were based here in the UK at King's College, but you've seen how young people have been rebelling against lockdowns and against the, the rules and regulations governing uh, COVID-19. That is not correct, really. You as a young person, how do you view the, the, the reaction of the opposition of young people to, to the lockdowns and all the regulations? Because they are the ones who have now been uh, uh, accused of spreading it among the, the parents and grandparents because they're just not listening to the advice. Well, uh, so to understand the agitation for, uh, for young people uh, regarding the lockdown and other measures to contain the virus, we need to understand the condition that led to that. You know, many young people uh, are agitated not because they didn't believe in the uh, pandemic, but also government has uh, we have to blame government 
in terms of sometimes uh, inconsistent uh, messaging or measures, because you can't expect to lock down people without uh, you know uh, providing alternative. More especially in terms of uh, many young people will lose their source of uh, income. Also, others will lose access to you know universities and schools. So, without providing any alternative that will uh, you know remedy this uh, uh, loss to young people, then you definitely people will have to you know respond, have to uh, mostly agitate. Also, you know, we have to look at mental issues. You know, most of many young people are at home facing domestic violence. Some were abused by their parents. So they know that this lockdown will, you know, bring them back to that uh, position which they would not uh, ordinarily want. So these are, to me, are some of the reasons why some young people are, are you know, uh, protesting. Not because they didn't believe uh, of the virus, but because of the condition that this lockdown will put them uh, I think mm -hmm. to me is uh, some of the reasons why they are protesting. Yes, but, but I view, don't you think this is also down to discipline? Because I mean, these young people have been having illegal parties, illegal waves, and challenging the police every step of the way. It, it has to do with discipline among young people too, isn't it? I mean, we cannot um, dispute that it's also a discipline issue, but what... Um... Ibrahim says also has a lot to do with it. There are cases of high indiscipline and especially, uh, for example, in Kenya, we saw cases of children of elite even being ferried from one party to another by ambulances, complete misuse of resources. So there's also high cases of indiscipline and especially parents encouraging that kind of behavior because um, whilst other lower income children and young people are being beaten by police, facing the wrath of the police because of defying curfews. Children of elite are being ferried by ambulances um, to go back home coming from late parties. So of course, cases of indiscipline cannot be um, refuted in this um, scenario. Yes, but you're a student of society, but in society these days, uh, adults like us are told not to discipline young people anymore, that they should, be, they, they should be free to do what they're doing. And that is now having a serious repercussion on, on COVID, COVID, don't you think? I think um, the, the definition of discipline from your generation was <laughs> taking a cane and beating, you know, and it has hardened many people, many young people, because for them it's like, just beat me, it's only pain, it will last a few minutes and I'll move on to do other things. So I think it also has to be about finding ways to, from a very young age, to, to, to have dialogue within the home. But African parents do not understand that language of discipline. For them, it's my way or the highway. So I think it's also about finding um, different ways to discipline, to dialogue with your children so that because they will understand and they do understand from a very young age. Okay, Ibrahim, we're talking about discipline and the role of young people. How, how do you view the, uh, the demonstrations in Lagos against the uh, special anti-robbery squad? Well, uh, as a uh, student of leadership and society, and also a uh, student of politics, young people have the legitimate right to go to the street for their agitation. And this is our fundamental human right to protest uh, what we feel is wrong, but while at the same time doing it within the confine of the law. 
without also imprinting on others, right? And also without allowing others, uh, you know, to hijack that process, you know, to cause disorder. So government should be very careful while maintaining law and order and also allowing people to legitimately express their uh, dissatisfaction mm -hmm. with uh, one's agency or one sector of the government. So the government should respond in order to address these uh, grievances that let people to go to the street because nobody will ordinarily want to go to the street to protest if things are moving okay. People will go mm -hmm. to the street as a uh, last resort because, you know, just like I mentioned, you know, just like our parents, some government doesn't, uh, you know, believe in the idea of dialogue. You need to engage people, you need to sit down with people. Even if you cannot, you know, uh, address their concern in a short-term uh, period, you need to explain to them that this is the process. This will take certain amount of time before we could able to do so-so. So you need to explain to people, but you can't just keep quiet and I expect people to understand without engaging them. So to me, uh, we need to emphasize more on dialogue and a two-way conversation between those in position of authority and the uh, community, more especially young people. All of you have had to uh, uh, postpone your field work. How have you been coping, Issa? Yes. Yes, how have you been coping? I mean, not been able to do practical field work. Well, what it's been... have you done? Um, it has been stressful um, for a fact because at, at first I thought maybe um, before starting our internship um, or attachment, we will, I mean, the rules will have been relaxed and we'll be able to go to the field and do this face-to-face. Um, -face. But that is not possible. And it seems we are doing things differently again. Um, it has also been a nice experience too because officially when I start my attachment, I've been given some you know, assignments to do. Um, trying to meet deadlines, um, which is just hectic. I thought maybe if I was on the ground, um, it was going to be a bit easier. Um, but it's getting difficult now because since it is online, you are not yes. moving to the office. So, you know, you're expected to do much. You're just <laughs> sitting home. Um, much is expected from you. So that is something that is um, a bit worrying, but I'm trying to cope with it. As I said earlier on, this is a new life. It's a new style that we have to adjust to. And it's something I think we'll be able to deal with because like people say COVID is here to stay. Uh, I'm not sure for how long, but it's here to stay for now. So we just have to cope or try to adjust a living with COVID. Oh, yes, of course. Infectious, we're still uh, surrounded by infectious diseases. They have not disappeared. Influenza is still here after all these years. The common cold is here after all these years. So we, we just have to live with it, Ivy. What do you think? Yeah, I think we really just have to live with it. And I, I'd like to think of us, the three of us, as pioneers in this field of doing a fellowship yes, during exactly. a pandemic. After so, 10 years. Yeah, you know how all those self-proclaimed experts are experts in ABC. We are we are actually experts in doing an MSc in a pandemic. So yes, yes. it's it's really a, a, a learned lesson. And you know, if I reflect on that the fact that we haven't done a lot of field, we haven't done field work actually. Mm -hmm. It's not all lost because the first section of our of our studies was face-to-face -face interactions and we really get especially leadership simulations and seminars. I, I cannot at this moment imagine doing those online. Um, 
but if that's what the new for example the new students have come to experience that is all they know then they will manage and they will find new ways and of course the the leadership teachers have devised strategies to to manage the situation but it's really it's we have to i mean it really is what it is we just have to find ways to live with what we have it's our new normal and i think it's not even new anymore it's our normal because people predicted it would be over by december at most but here we are almost crossing over to 2021. you did mention that it was a problem staying at the computer for hours and then so how did that really affect your intake of knowledge it was very challenging because of the um, attention span. Yes. Um, one hour is already too long to be staring at a computer. And especially when you're with colleagues who have different bandwidth strength, whereby yes. some of them have to switch off the camera. Where, and that face-to-face -to -face touch really makes a difference. So you find yourself um, multitasking. Um, doing other things. And I just found out that Zoom has an option whereby you're able to tell if your participants have made the Zoom screen as secondary screen. So you're able to monitor how attentive people are on Zoom. So it's, it's very challenging to stare at a screen for one hour. And yes, let yes, of course. Well, Ibrahim, since uh, no matter what you say, young Nigerians are very, very tech, uh, technical savvy. Do you think they themselves will come up with some uh, technology that will improve the, uh, the, 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 the Zoom uh, experience? Young Nigerians have been doing very well in terms of technology. Do you think they'll, they'll make some improvements? Yeah, I think uh, we have a lot of young people who are being innovative. I don't have... Uh, the name on top of my head. I think there is one one Nigerian who has developed an application, mm -hmm. and one U, U.S. Uh, uh, company has already bought it. So I mean, we have a lot of young uh, incubators, more especially in cities like uh, Lagos, who are doing uh, well. And of course, social media and the internet has become uh, a tool or mechanism for young people, you know, to express their education mm -hmm. because it's very easy. And also, is it reach a wide network of uh, audience, uh, and is easy, uh, easily accessible to young people, or like the, you know the formal way or the formal system, which is mostly uh, you know constrained, and we have limited access. For example, through the formal process of uh, governance, whereby young people are often uh, neglected and not carry along in terms of our governance processes. You're listening to the discussion program on the ALC Pan-African Radio. Stay tuned. Welcome back. My guests today are MSc Fellows at the African Leadership Center, studying Security, Leadership and Society. They are Ivy Nyawira from Kenya, Isa Njai from the Gambia, and Ibrahim Mashina from Nigeria. Starting with you, Isa, how do you view the political situation in the US, the elections, the violence, it was similar more or less to an African election, wasn't it? Very well, very well similar to an African election. In fact, I would say the other way around, um, because normally in Africa we see the opposition crying foul, <laughs> yes. um, free and fair, 
But is, here the, is the president calling, calling foul, crying foul now? Foul. Um, but ironically, um, he initially said that he, he was victorious and asked his people to, to celebrate. But then at the same time, we heard him say that he's going to challenge the matter to the Supreme Court, um, challenging the validity of the results that are coming, even though counting are still on the way. So it's quite interesting, um, but also, you know, looking at how, you know, the whole issue of race is playing into American elections, or American politics. It's quite interesting for us to see that. I've seen a lot of, um, you know, Africans on the continent per se, who are all anti-Trump, I would say. I mean, why anti-Trump? Because of his policy towards Africa. And this is what struck me most. And sometimes also people do complain, why do we have to put all our energy in American elections when, you know, there are elections in Ivy Coast. Just recently, um, Watara was said to have won the polls with 75% right, of the votes. I mean, Guinea, I mean, in our own backyard, I mean, things are unsettled. We're giving so much energy and concentration to the US elections, ignoring our very own elections where in fact, um, our leaders are, you know, kind of um, violating the rights of their people, um, even at not respecting the rules of the game at the polls. But, you know, back to the American elections, I think it's quite interesting. And, but what struck me most is when Trump is, because looking at the American college, um, electoral college system, if Trump refused to concede defeat, um, how will this play out? You know, he could challenge this to the Supreme Court. And once he challenged it to the Supreme Court, looking at the number of judges there, having the majority of them being conservative, um, it's going to be difficult for Biden to have his way out. They could, they could endorse him and he, Trump could stay as president. So that is something, but also I try to question the, the validity of American democracy. I think the electoral college system is a, it's, it's, it's a farce. It's something that America cannot, cannot be proud of to say it's a yardstick of, I mean, for, for democracy in the world. I think it's something that is, that even the Republicans and the Democrats have tried in the past to get rid of it, but it seems it is being supported by a few elites um, that kind of control the American society. And I think it's going to be difficult for them to do away with it. Yes, indeed, uh, uh, Ivy. Whenever the elections in Africa, you hear the American diplomats poking their noses in the elections and making all sorts of threats and comments. Shouldn't African countries make a lot of noise about the fast that is taking place in America at the moment? You know, I don't know what it is. I don't know whether it's inferiority complex amongst our African leaders. Yes, they're keeping quiet. Yeah, they're very, they're quiet about what's happening in Nigeria. So do you expect them to be saying anything about what's happening in the US? Yes. You know, the, uh, the, the model of democracy, the big giant. So it's, it's, we have seen this and we cannot expect them to say anything despite the America sending all these experts to Africa to monitor elections, to, yeah. do, to determine whether elections are free and fair, you know. So I don't think there will be any interference from any African presidents whatsoever because they always fear it will interrupt or ruin their reputation or ruin any trade agreements or ruin any relationships. So that always comes first before the people, which is a, quite a huge mistake that African leaders constantly make. Just, just add something. Yes, yes. Um, uh, um, Malema was talking when he was interviewed about- Julius Malema, uh, South Africa. Yeah, that he said, look, if we in the developing world are complaining that our elections 
are marked by fraud, we want this system to be fixed. Those in the so-called first world are also complaining of the same because Trump is complaining of fraud. He said then democracy is in danger. And that's true. But also he talked about, I mean, look at Ivory Coast, what is happening there. Yes. American embassy in Abidjan issued a statement on Ivory election. When there is a crisis in their own no, country, when they're in exactly. is talking about fraud in the country. Now, this morning, when, when that happened, I thought of why can't African embassies in the United States also issue statements to say we exactly. are monitoring the in the U.S., okay? <laughs> but, 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 but Ibrahim, most of these African leaders themselves don't have a leg to stand on. They, they, they stand on. They have all been involved in electoral fraud, so they, they, they can't say anything, can they? Well, most of them, not all of them. Yeah, that is my own understanding because yeah uh, like i mentioned about is you know imperial complex but also to be we have to look at also the legitimacy of these leaders that we are expecting to talk most of our election also are proud with uh, you know irregularities and violence people will uh, will like Museveni who have been in power for more than 30 years you can't expect them you know to fuck their nose also in their election while it is, you know, unfortunate, you know, most of advanced country, uh, you know, interfering in our election. But of course, for election to be uh, free and fair, you need you need uh, uh, external, uh, you know, uh, what will I say, monitoring in order to ensure transparency and accountability. But one lesson from the U.S. election to me is the fact that, unlike in Africa, where people in position of authority are using state institutions you know, for their own advantage. You know, in the United States, it's very uh, difficult. You can't expect, for example, President Trump, because he's the president to use the, you know, the military or to use the police for his own advantage or even the lateral uh, body. But this is something that stands out from their election that we also need to, you know, work on it in our country. Because in our, uh, you know, system, for example, like in Uganda, you know, the opposition leader, I just saw, I think, day before yesterday, when he declared his intention, Bobby Wine, when he declared his intention to contest, you know, he was whisked away by the, you know, security apparatus, which, you know, is not part of the doctrine of democracy. You need, you need opposition, you need to allow people to contest. People should decide who their leader is, not, you know, by using violence. But also it's unfortunate, you know, in the U.S. as, you know, one of the highly recognized democratic states, you know, you know, accusing of, uh, for example, the president accusing of crowd without any evidence, you know, is also a danger to the democracy. Because yes, you have the legitimate right to go to the uh, courts if you have a case, but you can't just expect to announce yourself as a winner without allowing those who has the authority to do that. It's also a uh, mistake. And also, you know, accusing of crowd while you have no proof, no any evidence. So I mean, so it's both. There is both lessons we we can you know uh, learn from this uh, election. Well, of course, of course, Ivy. I think the U.S. should have also learned from uh, Tanzania. When there's an election like the last one in Tanzania, the internet the internet was shut down. I think if the internet was shut down in America, uh, President Trump would have got his way. But then, of course, you can't do that. In America, why do we then allow African leaders to shut down uh, communications when there are elections? That's a leadership uh, uh, problem. 
I think even just to go back to how similar these elections, the US elections are to the African one, yeah. where the president is already announcing himself winners. And um, I think this morning, Trump supporters are already um, gathering you know, crowds to, to talk about how votes should be counted. You see, that is already a recipe for tipping into conflict, should he not win? And from what we are seeing, he really is, I don't think, there are chances for him to be winning, but we never know, we never know. So in the event that elections don't go his way, is it, does it mean that he will now be inciting the, the, his supporters? Because despite what we think about him, he has many, many supporters. And we have seen that in the numbers who are still voting for him, despite um, um, the electoral college favoring Biden. But, um, to come back to your question, uh, what was your question? Oh, the internet shutting down internet. Um, internet I, think, in Africa. I think with Africa, we let our leaders get away with too much. So we, as Africans, we, we are usually fighting to survive. So when you ask about internet and I, I don't have food at home, Will I be now going to the street to protest that you've shut down internet instead of going to work to look for food and feed for my family? So the priorities are definitely different in the two continents. But also, I mean, you're also a student of security. How do you view the, the, the strength of foreign Islamic fighters in Africa? The African Union, African governments have to take a strong stand against all of this. We hear about Islamic killings in Europe and, and makes the, 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 the news globally. But there are more people being killed by Islamic terrorists in Africa than anywhere else in the world. And we don't get much publicity. So how do you think Africa should handle this problem of foreign fighters coming to create mayhem in Africa? Uh, Issa. Well, I think um, you know the issue of um, security is a major concern um, in Africa. Um, leaders have been battling with this, and day in, day out, you know, it's the same rhetoric is that we are doing our level best to contain the, the threats that are coming both internally and externally. But I think it's, um, it seems like African governments are um, losing in their responsibility, or leaders are losing on their responsibility to provide the maximum security that their people need. Um, I think what they're hell bent on is to. Um, and so regime security rather than public security. This has been a phenomenon in Africa since independence, that many a times when regimes come to power, leaders think of how to secure their own regime than to secure the people that they are leading. Um, with this commitment of having to rely on other countries for our own security, I think the threat to, the, to lives and livelihoods in Africa will increase. That we do not have to rely on outsiders to provide security for our people. And this is exactly what is happening on the continent. We rely on external powers or foreign powers to train our security forces, to provide those trainings that will ensure security for our people. I think this, we need to take a shift from this. Having to rely on external powers to provide security for our people wouldn't solve the problem. It is important that African government, like we always say, African solutions are African problems. Our political problems, if we can handle our political problems internally, sitting down as Africans to say these are the solutions to African problems politically, I think security-wise, 
we can have that collaboration as well. We can have that African solution to African problems where leaders will sit down, I mean, map out ways forward to see how best they can solve the security challenges that the continent is facing. I think the threat of these um, external fighters, terrorists, we might call them, um, is gaining momentum on the continent, especially in the Sahel, where you know, insecurity is on a growing strength. And little efforts are being done um, to address this um, problem. Yes, indeed, Ibrahim. Uh, Isa has just spoken about how government should defend the integrity of the people. But in Nigeria, the military cannot defeat uh, Boko Haram, but they're quick to shoot and kill innocent unarmed civilians. That is, that is not right, is it? Yeah, I mean, just like Isa rightly mentioned, we need to rethink our you know, security approaches. For us to effectively counter the uh, violent extremism that is devastating Northeast Nigeria, and of course you have to, you know, you have to mention that it's not only the issue of Boko Haram now in Nigeria. We have the issue of kidnapping, we have the issue of uh, you know armed banditry. So there are a lot of security challenges that we need to address. So to me, one of the uh, uh, ways government should go about it is, most especially the military, is to try to build a common security relationship with the communities. Because you can't address an issue in a community without involving those uh, who are respected, for example, community leaders, traditional leaders, and religious leaders, and young people to build a common security relationship. And also, government should work with this community to address certain conditions, you know, that led to grievances uh, in this society. Poverty, unemployment are also uh, so, uh, making uh, these uh, terrorists or uh, armed groups to have uh, like a safe haven in this community. So government need to address this security condition that led to the emergence of these uh, groups and also need to build a common security relationship between the communities and the government. And also the uh, security, of course, should uh, you know protect the right and dignity of those people they are supposed to uh, you know protect, not like you mentioned, you know, harassing or even violating the people's rights through uh, brutality and order uh, on democratic means. Yes, uh, finally, Ivy, what has been your main uh, experience during this year on the course? Um, I've had many experiences and they've been different, personal, professional. But what, one thing I can say is that I have seen the value of seizing opportunities and having initiative because um, the ALC generally, the ALC fraternity has a lot of mentorship programs, a lot of training sessions. And it's not just um, the, the mentors and the facilitators, they go above and beyond to ensure that you actually get the quality and they deliver what they're supposed to deliver. So you seizing the moment and following up brings about more opportunities to you. So I have learned that and I have seen it and it's been very valuable in my journey at the ALC. What about you, uh, Isa? Well, um, it has been a nice experience. Um, just like Ivy said, to reiterate that point, um, the ALC goes extra mile to provide what is relevant to our studies, what is relevant to what we do, and what is relevant to our, our career development um, as far as the area of security and development is concerned. And this is something that um, I've definitely learned 
and you know it's something that I intend to build on, especially um, during my attachment, which will greatly help me to, you know, um, on my career path as far as my work or my research interest in issues of security um, and peace and conflict studies are concerned. And you, Ibrahim? Yes, uh, just like my colleague uh, mentioned, also uh, I would like to commend the Africa Leadership Center and Kings College in general, you know, for leading us through this crisis. You know, we, we didn't allow this uh, crisis to, you know, interrupt our studies. We are able to create a innovative way of, you know, balancing this uh, 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 pandemic, responding to the pandemic while at the same time continuing with our studies, more socially, the fellowship aspect, you know, not only the masters, but also other uh, fellowship activities, for example, like our mentoring sessions and, and other uh, uh, programs which we're able to continue. For example, our uh, program with the IPI in New York, which we are supposed to you know, travel uh, in July, but because of the pandemic, we will not. But that, isn't, that doesn't stop us from you know, you know, benefiting from it. Although the experience will be different if it was physically, but at least we are able to create uh, an avenue to continue with this uh, program virtually. So I think this, this is a lesson also more especially to our African leaders that you know, Africa, we have been facing one crisis or the other, from Ebola to Boko Haram to election violence in one country or the other. So I think this is uh, something that we should try to work in, try to work and, you know, navigate and inspire people to lead them through crisis. Thank you very much, Ayedv Nyawira from Kenya, Isa Injai from the Gambia, and Ibrahim Mashina from uh, Nigeria. MSc fellows at the African Leadership Center at King's College studying security, leadership, and society. Thank you very much, Desmond. It's great to see you again. Thank you. In radio. For this and other programs, please visit our website at alcafricanradio.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Radio ALC and on Facebook at ALC Radio numeral number one. For feedback on this and other programs, please send an email to info at africanradio.com. <laughs>